Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1323, 1323. <laughs> oh dear, I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. <laughs> And today's episode is entitled, What Do You Get If You Cross a Mando with a Time Machine? (laughs) (laughs) Our podcast title is, I Have Podkin. (laughs) All right, so here we are with the first episode of Zero G for 2021, where Mm -hmm. both Megan and I are present. (laughs) <laughs> yes, present in a sense. I am, of course, being patched in. Uh, so Rob is handling everything at ground control. So it is nice. I think we've gotten used to running it through the, uh, the lens of the old computer screen, but it's good to be back and I'm excited about 2021 and goodness knows what we're going to cover this year, Rob. I'm sure it will be plentiful and mm. odd as per usual. So very excited, happy to be back. Not to mention the fact that goodness probably has nothing to do with it. Yes, hopefully not. <laughs> well, a mixed sort of show today. We have a book that Megan has brought in to talk about. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to have a, a little chat about another book, The Art of Star Wars, The Mandalorian. And uh, also maybe take a, a quick little trot through The Watch streaming show and also a, a brief look at... Uh, Death to 2020, which is a <laughs> comedy special. All right. Nice. So, Megan, this book that you've bought in today, is it a, a holiday read? Yes. I would say pretty firmly it is a holiday read, and by that I mean it is very easy to get into. It's rollicking fun. So yeah, it's kind of your perfect this time of year read where you're feeling maybe like your focus is a bit off. You've got to kind of gear up for the year and you're not too sure yet (laughs) how that's going to go. And you don't want anything, you know, I'm not, I don't want anything that has footnotes. Let's put it that way. I'm really in for a read that's going to be very easy to start And then, you know, it's pretty much the equivalent of when you're cutting wrapping paper and the scissors start to glide. That's the reading experience that I want for myself. (laughs) So uh, the book I'm going to talk about, so we just dive in, I guess. So It's appropriate. (laughs) It is because we are, um, ahoy, we are out on the high seas. So the book is called The Devil and the Dark Water and it did come out towards the end of last year, 2020. It's by an author called Stuart Turton. He's a British author and it is his second book. It is by Raven Books and it's that's an imprint of Bloomsbury. And one thing I've noticed, this is just a smaller side, that Bloomsbury has started to do is they have a note about the font at the back of their books. It's like the origins of this font and why this font has been chosen. I thought that was kind of cool. So anyway, 
Devil in the Dark Water. Now, Turton, his first novel was The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. So I loved that book. I think we did cover it on Zero G a little bit. It was a time-bending murder mystery, and it's very fitting because we've done a lot of time loop, time kind of weird stuff lately. And so it's a very similar thing where there's some elements of it's a murder mystery, but there's some other stuff going on here. So it's got this great golden age murder mystery, Agatha Christie vibe. Uh, and then also it has this more modern lens as well. And I won't go too much into that because it will spoil the adventure of the book. So I can definitely recommend his first novel, The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. So I was very excited when I saw that he had a new book out. And when I read a little bit about kind of the premise of the book, I was all in for it because I think he likes to do these genre-esque stories and he really knows what readers want to grab onto with these kinds of things. So he did his classic murder mystery and now we are in for a a murder mystery that is aboard a ship, a spice ship. So we're, um, let me talk a little bit about the setting. So it's a bit of a Sherlock Holmesy vibe, uh, and it's a bit of a historical adventure as well. It's very immersive, and like I said, you'll be able to latch onto it pretty quickly. It does not take itself too seriously, so don't be intimidated if I say, you know, it's set in 1634, we're aboard a Dutch spice ship, and we're traveling through the seas, and you're like, oh god, no, that sounds like the opposite of a holiday read. It it really doesn't take itself seriously, and he's setting out to tell this tale of mystery and mayhem and murder and that is what he's focusing on this is not a play-by-play of (laughs) spice shipping in that time period I mean another great read probably would read that but that's not what this book is so as I mentioned we're on the high seas we're on our ship uh I don't know much about 1634 I know enough I don't know how accurate this novel is I'm sure it's not that accurate but I don't really care it's definitely about the vibe and setting that he's bringing to us and what what he's kind of setting up 1634 it was a very bad year for rum oh was it (laughs) I don't know. Oh, well, you had me, Rob. I was like, oh, Rob's really into 1634 shipping protocol. But um, so, okay, so setting. Here we are. We're about to set sail on the Sardam. Start of the book, there's a curious event on the docks right near the ship and, you know, kind of started, sets up some of the things that are going to come. But unfortunately, we still set sail on our ship and then we're stuck out on the seas, obviously, um, sailing around while just absolute havoc begins to unfold aboard the ship. So, I mean, that's, I mean, it had me when I was, when I was sort of thinking a bit about this premise. So I'll talk a little bit about the characters. So we do have a big cross-section of zany and, yes, probably stereotypical characters, but it's tongue-in-cheek. And as I mentioned before, we're not going for play-by-play historical accuracy here. So we've got our zany characters. They can be a little bit hard to keep track of because we do have passengers and we've got our crew and we have a little bit of this rivalry set up between the sailors and the musketeers, which are also aboard the ship. So we have this cavalry, don't know if I'm using the right terms here, but a whole bunch of musketeers there as well. So, and then of course, some noble passengers of, you know, high class, quote unquote. And then we have, um, I guess they call it like 
steerage, I don't know, your lower class passengers who have really tried to, um, you know, given all their money for a ticket in these terrible conditions in the bowels of this ship. Uh, there's animals aboard. And I think we're setting sail for about eight months. So... Are there any vampires on board? Because the last sailing ship that we encountered on Zero G had a vampire on board. Well, I don't want to ruin anything. I wouldn't rule anything out. I don't want to, you know, say yes or no to that question. There's some There's some stuff. Um, but no, not specifically vampires. But there is some interesting things afoot as we uh, take off on our adventure. So I guess the I won't run through all the characters because, like I mentioned, we've got, you know, we've got a captain, a chief merchant, first mate, guard captain. There's some religious folk aboard. There's a whole range of people to keep track of. And so I don't want to delve too much. I think that'll be for you to unfold if you decide to read it. But our key characters, we've got a fellow called Aunt Hayes. Now, I read it as aunt, but it could be a rent. It could be a rent. I mean, it's up to you, really. Uh, And now he is the sidekick to a famous detective called Samuel Pipps. But, and then Samuel Pipps is obviously our Sherlock Holmesian character, but it's actually Hayes that we're following here. So our Watson. So we spend our time with him because Pipps is shackled and locked up in a cell below deck. So Aunt is kind of set off on his own to help solve some of the mysteries. And he's a rough and tumble character. He has a history in the military. He's got a dark past. He's very tough. So they talk a lot about, they, the author talks a lot about the, how imposing he is. He's got this tough exterior, but a soft heart inside. And you kind of really see straight away that he's very smart character and that he's this nice mixture of contradictions. So we've got Aunt. And then we also have another key character is Sarah Vessel. I'm going to say it like that. Sarah Vessel. So she's a noble woman. She's a healer. She's also very smart. So she knows a bit about medicine, very clever and observant. She's very curious, obviously. So that's a key trait of some of these characters in this type of mystery. And she's the wife of the governor general. Now, he's probably top dog on the ship. He's got the biggest cabin. He's the fanciest pants there. And she despises him because he's a bit of a tool. And uh, so she's got a few secrets of her own. And then we have some other characters that kind of orbit around these main, um, you know, our aunt character who's there with Samuel and then also this kind of noble class of people, Sarah included. So they're kind of our key characters to keep track of. And there'll be some other people flitting through, but that's that's mainly it. Um, maybe what I will do is should we go to a track and then when we come back I'll talk a little bit more about the mystery and my thoughts on the book as a whole. Uh, so what should we listen to, Rob? Well, I was thinking David Bowie because, you know, it's uh, that time of year and it's been five years mm, already, wow. already. Gosh. And, and I'm just thinking about it that we've been playing a David Bowie track every week for the last five years. I mean, it's uh, a big feat, isn't it? Yeah. And you know what? I still don't think we've actually played every single one of them. Oh, we've got, I think we've got a definite backlog still to get through, which is great news. Yeah. I think I'm happy to keep going with this as long as we can do it. It's either that or covers. Now, since we were talking about a book about the sea, I was mm-hmm. thinking Life Aquatic. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, so we could get away with that, but love it. But but in this case, I I, I actually found one for a sailing ship, so it's called Red Sails, oh. mm-hmm. and it's from from his Lodger album, and it's really kind of about a modern day sort of swashbuckling Errol Flynn type sort of thing that's going on there, as much as you can ever work out any mm-hmm. David Bowie song, technically speaking. <laughs> <laughs> and so we'll play Red Sails here from the Lodger album. This is Neil Gaiman. It's well past 2000 AD, but Tharg still listens to Zero G. Yeah, indeed. That was Mr Bowie there with Red Sails, a very nautical song from his Lodger album. I'm Rob Jan, and we have also Megan McEwen today. Yes, (laughs) joining us again, 2021, and I was just talking through a book that I read over the summer. So the book is called The Devil and the Dark Water. It is by Stuart Turton, uh, he who also wrote the wonderful The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. So I've given you a little bit of setting the stage of where we are. We're sailing on the high seas, stuck on this ship for eight months, Uh, I mean, yes, grim circumstances in some ways. And then a mystery begins to unfold. And this is what I was here for. And I think he's really, the author has latched on to the idea that the mystery element is what he's obviously enjoying doing. Like in in the cover of this book, as well as the last one, there's a beautiful illustration of the ship and where all the areas are and who the characters are, like a list of characters for you. And so it's just this very fun setting up a mystery in different kinds of situations. And so in this case, we have our two protagonists, I guess we'd say, Aunt or Arendt and Sarah. And they, I mean, this is sort of clear from the very start. Like, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. They end up teaming up a little bit to solve a mystery because our usual detective Samuel is uh, otherwise indisposed, being locked up and so on. So these two have to solve the mystery about what's going on on the ship. And basically without, I don't want to go into it too much because I don't want to ruin it, there's some weird happenings and there's some question as to if it is otherworldly or not. Uh, So some different, quote-unquote, signs of the devil have started appearing on the ship, different omens, certain people are, you know, taking seeing these omens and knowing a little more about them than what they let on at the start and as the book unfolds we do unravel this sort of age-old mystery uh that digs up some secrets and links some of the characters we didn't know were linked before and strange takes some strange and unexpected turns so that's the kind of thing that we're in for uh things disappearing things appearing out of nowhere Uh, weird signs scribbled in weird places. And then, of course, we do have a murder, and it is a locked room murder. So that's also very exciting because I love a good locked room mystery. And, yeah, so we're just kind of following what's going on on the ship as these weird things happen and different things, things escalate, to put it mildly, and then obviously we go racing to our conclusion. So I guess... Overall, I mean, you asked at the start, Rob, whether it was a good holiday read, and that's a definite yes from me because it's very plot-driven. So it's really uh, the narrative is like just chugging along like the setting and the story and these characters where really it's very easy to just become quite immersed in in what's going on and be keen to find out what's going to happen next. It's written in this very descriptive atmospheric way that really 
gives you the sense of where you are, but it's not overdone. Like it would be very easy for a setting like this for it to be too descriptive or too flowery. And in my opinion, I thought it was just the right amount. Uh, it's definitely, he has a nice little afterward, after word, afterward in the back of the book where he says, guys, <laughs> this is much more fiction than it is historical. And, you know, I took liberties where I wanted and I took things that I thought would serve my story and other elements that didn't work for me from that time period, I didn't use. And I, you know, I'm okay with that. So he sort of said, you know, that the tech is more advanced in some ways. The attitudes are more advanced. The speech is different to what it would really be like. He's trimmed down the amount of characters. Um, you know, he didn't want any weird details to get in the way of the story he was trying to tell. That's pretty much what he says in the back. And I totally respect that. I think I don't want to read a grim story about a ship where I'm sure that they would not be letting a woman run around solve crimes. It'd be way more violent. There'd be all these goodness knows what's going on on that ship. I don't want to read that story. I'm here for a fun mystery. So I was totally happy with him taking those liberties. Um, so that's just, and he says in the back, he has this funny quote where he's like, just in case he came here looking for like a Hillary Mantel, it is not like we are not, this is not a very close to history historical fiction. I'm, I've picked a setting I want and I've done what I want with it. So, so that's my caveat on that. If you're like really into the 1600 spy ships and you want to read a detailed account, uh, don't come to this book. Um, so yeah, it was just fun. Is there any insight into why the author chose that particular setting? Ooh, that's a good question. I think probably he just thought it would be a cool place to set a murder mystery, to be honest. That's the gist that I get. In the back, he sort of says, um, you know, he did a lot of research. Like he did his research and then he just deliberately threw away what he didn't want. Mm. And from me, he sort of says he doesn't like to pin genre to his stories. So I think he pretty much thought it was a cool setting and then went with it and he wanted to do another mystery and it probably was a lot of fun to write some of the ship things and those interactions and those relationships in a way that he wanted so and for me I thought it was appealing like when I heard the kind of premise of it and where it was set I was like I would read that like I think I'd be interested to see what he does with it so uh yeah I think you know with the map and the key people listed out you'll be able to kind of keep track of what's going on but it's just meant to be a fun ride and as for the conclusion like I'm not gonna you know I was happy with how it ended I think sometimes the risk is you either can't guess the mystery at all it's so obtuse that you never would guess it or it's too easy to figure out or it doesn't make any sense and they just go in a totally different direction to what you had thought and I I didn't find that problem with this at all I mean, I don't think it's going to be a book that you treasure, read again, you know, but I would recommend it as something that I enjoyed a lot. I think it's well written. I'm definitely going to read his third book. <laughs> um, if you haven't read Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, I did prefer that. But I mean, it's unfair to compare an author with his own work. But I would say both of these are worth a read. Uh, but I do think Seven Deaths, I think in some ways, is a little more interesting in what it's doing. But that said, this was a solid effort. So effort, that's so condescending. <laughs> <laughs> Good effort, Stuart. Uh, no, it was a solid read. Devil in the Dark Water by Stuart Turton. Uh, it did come out end of last year, so it should be pretty easy to find e-reader, library, 
all of that jazz. I bought it from the local bookshop. So, but if you're interested in it, I don't think you should have any trouble finding it. Hopefully, um, is that a trade? Yeah. Is that a trade paperback or or just yes. a regular? I got the trade paperback because it has this beautiful embossed, like the ocean yeah. waves are kind of embossed and it's got a bit of shiny gold on the cover. So I thought it was just a really nice, beautiful cover. Actually, his cover of his other book is a similar. It's got a kind of old worldy vibe and I think that's the kind of thing he's going for. So is I it, definitely is it, a, it, is it a quick read? I read it pretty quick. I read it in a couple of days. It's pretty thick, but we've got big margins and big fonts, <laughs> so uh, I reckon you could get through it um, pretty quickly. And it's not complicated in terms of like you don't have to pause and start thinking. It's more just keeping track of who's who. Uh, but I reckon you could whip through it pretty quick. Uh, if, it's, if it's too if it's too long as a detective story, it feels like it never lands, and you stop giving an Amsterdam about it. <laughs> Very good and very true. I agree. I think it's probably leaning towards it could have gone too long. I, I agree with you. I think shorter is better for detective and mysteries, but uh, I think he just teeters on the edge of okay. Mm. So, Well, sail on with mm-hmm. the devil and the dark water. It sounds like it does actually sound like a more of a, um, a fantasy genre novel than it actually is. Yeah, uh, I'm in a, I think there's some elements here where you will be like, oh, what is this? And I like that. He's a bit genre bending. That was his previous work as well. It was a mystery with a twist. So this is the same thing here. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. We played a Bowie track earlier, bouncing off the proximity to the entire, you know, mm-hmm. entering and leaving of Mr Bowie from our astral plane. And I did find out that he preferred to travel by sea or train where he could rather than by plane. There you go. There you go. So Davy Jones, he knew where his locker was. (laughs) So instead of a Bowie song next, and since we're transitioning into another sea, the sea of space after this, I thought I'd try a space shanty by John English from his Black Label album. So here we go, off into the sea of space. Oh, this is me, right? Ah, yes. Oh, <clears throat> right, voiceover time. Avast there, mateys. This is Captain John English, and you'll be listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. Pirate radio, har har. Beware of cheap pirate copies. <laughs> 25 years of doing Zero G. Was it 26 now? Can't quite remember. And I've never played that track before. Ah, oh, there you go. <laughs> Did not even know of its existence until I, until I <laughs> started looking up space pirates and space shanties and stuff. Space Shanty <laughs> by John English, Black Label album. Gone but not forgotten is the great mm. Mr English. All right, now, we played that transiting from one sea on Earth to another sea in space. Mm. <clears throat> Out there in the expanse. But not quite there yet. We keep promising we're going to look at the expanse, but <laughs> it's such a big topic. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is a book. It's The Art of Star Wars, The Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. And I keep wanting to pronounce that Mandalorian because they call him Mando. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, you know. <laughs> anyway, it's a 2020 Abrams Books, uh, from Abrams Books, and it's written by Phil Stostak. Uh, who also did um, 
The Art of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. And he's a Lucasfilm creative art manager working with Lucas since 2008. So obviously has encompassed some of the other movies as well. And this is about uh, 256 pages. It's a hardback with end papers, roughly there. And you've already sort of got an introduction to this book if you've been watching the, the Mandalorian television series on, on Disney+, Plus, the two seasons so far, because you'll have seen pre-production art that's featured in the end credits of each episode, mm-hmm. which is such a class act. It's so cool. I think it's such a nice addition and it, it really sets the tone with that great score as well. I think, yeah, so little sneak peek of some of that art and it looks beautiful. Mm. And a lot of that artwork is included here. Now, this book only encompasses the first season mm-hmm. because obviously they want to sell you a second book later on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Spoilers. Yeah. It's uh, got a foreword by Doug Chang, who's the Lucasfilm Vice President and Executive Creative Art Director and has mm-hmm. his origins in um, Star Wars art as well. So these are people who know what they're talking about. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get a quick sense that it's all heavily influenced by what's gone before, obviously. There's many films down the track and television shows. Uh, yeah. And it, it's enthused with the spaghetti western and samurai Chanabara aesthetic that's part of showrunner John Favreau's inspiration and also his co-runner Dave Filoni. Uh, Favreau sort of um, is in charge of the writing side and, yeah. and production and um, Filoni's um, sort of more connected with the directorial side. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Lucas, of course, was also inspired by those back in the day and they acknowledged straight up... Um, Kazuo Koki's and Goseki Kojima's Lone Wolf and Cub manga. Ah, yep. And the 1970s movies adapted from it. Ah, yep. As well as, of course, uh, the Sergio Leone Clint Eastwood westerns. Mm. So, you know, you've got a mix of uh, Ronin, Samurai and (laughs) Bounty Hunter. Yeah. As well as so many other things. Uh, Favreau was um, sound mixing one of the Iron Man movies at Skywalker Ranch when he sort of got this connection with them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. said, uh, you know, if you've got a voice on one of your cartoon shows to play, yeah, I'm your man. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed he was their Mandalorian. He played the voice of the leader pre Visla in Star Wars Clone Wars, not the Tartakovsky one, uh, and Rebels later on. No. And, and his um, notional clan created the Dark Saber, which features in the Mandalorian of series. Mm. Mm. Uh, I think it's a spoiler. He doesn't come to a good end. <laughs> 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 but anyway, he is in a better place now doing the show running for the Mandalorian. This book places it all in context of the movies. Um, that for, They've got one third of the time to create it mm-hmm. uh, and half the budget of your average Star Wars film. Oof, yeah. Which is still actually quite a bit when you think about it. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, it's very moody and atmospheric artwork. Mm. Uh, one piece entitled Lone Wolf and Cub by artist Ryan Church and uh, Grindal uh, touches a, a gauntleted fingertip to Grogu's hand. So you've got like Mando sort of standing over the anti-grav pod pram pusher. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, you know, just sort of that little first 
concert. Yeah. There's a crashed ship burning in the background, somebody who's obviously had the bounty collected on them in the foreground, <laughs> and a brooding fortress against a smoke-hazed red sky. You know, this is the sort of thing that you use to, to sell the whole thing. Yeah, the vision. With. Yeah. There's a who's who list of production credits, which I actually liked right up front, mm. uh, which includes people like um, Ralph McQuarrie, uh, right, going back to the original Star Wars, setting the visual tone for the series. And that's actually where I started collecting Star Wars uh, artwork, books and stuff. Um, you know, Ralph McQuarrie's uh, Art of Star Wars portfolio, oh. which had all these really beautiful and nicely presented uh, prints. You, just, yeah. you opened it up, you just got the prints out and you could marvel at them or put them up on the wall. Or, nice. Or just collect them for the, since 1977 like I did. <laughs> And, you know, Joe Johnson's um, uh, technical uh, manual, well, it's not really a technical manual, Star Wars sketchbook. He did one for oh, yeah. for the first movie and Empire Strikes Back. And they're mm. beautiful drawings, very clean line mm. drawings showing, you know, the, the components of the battles and stuff. And sometimes they have very little to do with what actually ended up on screen. Yeah. Because they're pre-production sketches. But that's all right. They still set the tone. Mm, all they, history. Mm, they do take us through the pitch for the show, uh, supported by the sketches and the paintings, which is, of course, an important task of this pre-production artwork. And they show a, a painting and a sketch of, um, of a Mandalorian helmet, which mm-hmm. is really, when you think about it, says it all yeah. <laughs> about the show. And it's actually Boba Fett, the original bounty hunter. Of course, hunter. yeah, the one we know and... <laughs> familiar with because they hadn't figured out quite at that stage how to make him quite separate from the uh the new mandalorian yeah, yeah. Um, and, and i remember seeing boba fett who actually isn't a mandalorian as such uh, he just wears his armor mm. uh, it's like that time when um uh angel met spike aboard a, a german u-boat in world war Two. And Spike was wearing a, a nazi coat and angel said spike you're a nazi and he goes what well, uh, no i just ate one <laughs> so Boba Fett actually just got this um, Mandalorian armour and he was wearing that in the Star Wars holiday special where I first encountered him way back mm-hmm. in the day. Um, yeah. It was an animated little short within the whole thing and he had that particular sort of tuning fork blaster rifle. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So all of this goes back to that. Uh, and, of course, later on we saw him as the bounty hunter in Empire Strikes Back and uh, Return of the Jedi, and later on in the prequels we met his father, Jango Fett, you know, yeah. that the um, the guy who thought it was a, a great idea to jump in and go hand-to-hand combat with an arena full of Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> not exactly the smartest thing to do. On the other Definitely hand, not. the Mandalorian armour originally was kind of designed to go toe-to-toe with Jedi Knights. Oh. That's why it's got all, it's so you know it's got the Beskar steel which is resistant to lightsabers and all of those sort of gadgety mm. things you know the, yeah. the Mandalorian armor is basically um, the Swiss Army and the knife that it rode in on all in one sort of suit <laughs> with all of its gadgets uh, you know so I didn't actually think that Boba Fett was or his father were very well served in any of the earlier incarnations. No. Um, now, of course, if you've seen second season, we, if you haven't, I've just spoiled it for you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, now we've really got there. There are some, there's some artwork in here. It's just plain exhilarating. We get a thrilling pursuit on Monster Back where Mando is snatching back a captive from someone else. And you can just see it as a stunt, you know. It would have yeah. been great. 
Uh, and the, the culture of the Mandalorians is, is worked out here. Basically, they're armoured religion. That means that they never take off the helmets if they're part of the, the hardcore set. Um, <laughs> we get to see some female Mandalorian suits for the first time. Uh, the armourer who plays such a big part oh, in the yeah. first season. Yeah, uh, you know, and the, de- the development of everything, the heavy infantry. Um, you know, it feels a bit Warhammer-ish if you're familiar with that gaming universe. But, yeah. Okay. But also definitely Iron Man. Yeah. If, the, yeah. Yeah, if Tony had founded his own religion, and really when you think about it, why wouldn't he? <laughs> and I'm sure there will be one created on the back of his his supreme sacrifice. <laughs> and, of course, because of the John Favreau connection, I feel very strongly about this whole thing. Yeah, he might, Favreau must have a thing for armoured, you know, mm. vigilante, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, he's, he's he likes the whole armoured thing. Interesting. I mean, he does it well. He's kick-started so many you know, massive franchises and Mandalorian. I think going thinking about how this was once, you know, an idea and these artwork was done and they were trying to sell it and then thinking now about how well received and how critically acclaimed it is. Well, I mean Favreau. He's what can't he do? He can whip up a delicious meal and have <laughs> a huge impact on cultural consciousness in the twenty first century. This, this what is, a guy. This is the way. <laughs> They they show how they develop the Mandalorian armour for the series. They refine the silhouettes and the forms. So I'm trying to give you the the, the picture with with words of the process Mm. that they undergo with with the book that's all laid out there. You know, um, sort of sorting out the exact surface texture of Beskar steel and uh, uh, weathering it and the design evolution. And the the way they finally uh, set um, Mando's armour apart from Boba Fett's, apart from making it full Beskar plate, was that they got rid of the little, um, uh, little, what would you call it? It's like in in the United States when you have a, a letter come into your um, yeah. post box, there's a little flag that pops up. Like an antennary flag yeah. thing. It's a targeting yeah. system for Boba Fett's we- weapon system. But they mm. got rid of that for the Mandalorian mm-hmm. to give that just slightly more medieval look. Yes, that's mm. a good, good call. Of course, there's lots of drawings and, and paintings of the Razor Crest, mm-hmm. Mando's... Uh, Ship, not to mm-hmm. be confused with the Expanse's sporty Razorback yacht, and it's. I didn't know this, but the design is sort of uh, taking a leaf out of the rugged book of the American ground attack fighter, the A ten Thunderbolt. Oh, and didn't a, know that. It's a very chunky beast if you've ever seen one, and uh, ironically, although I said it's not like the Razorback from the Expanse, the Thunderbolt's also called the Warthog. Because so, it's just ugly as sin, but yeah, tough as old boots. <laughs> Alien and creature design is featured both uh, small and ginormous because there's a lot of big monsters in The Mandalorian. Uh, mm. the, the I have spoken Ugnaught mm-hmm. and his Blurg riding beastie. Yeah. And the IG-88 bounty hunter droid, so plaintively brought to life by the voice of uh, Taika Waititi. Yes. And there are so many Baby Yoda pictures. Excellent. That's <laughs> going to sell the book on its own, isn't it? It will. <laughs> uh, characters designed for the more human people. And they must have done this fairly advanced or else they knew in advance who they were going to get to play them. Mm. Because we've got Werner Herzog as the client and uh, Carl Weathers as the Guildmaster Carga, uh, um, and Cara Dune mm-hmm. and Moff Gideon. 
Giancarlo Esposito right there. And I hope they gave him a copy of the painting of him done up in the uh, Moff Gideon armour because it's great. Yeah. You know, if you, yeah. were, you were an actor, you'd love to have that above your mantelpiece or something like that. Or maybe that's a bit naff. Maybe that's a bit naff. Maybe you'd, in the study, in, in the parlour, not pr- the main room. In the pool room. In the pool room. <laughs> <laughs> Along with the dark sabre. <laughs> Uh, there are some splendid landscape pictures with their peaceful pastoral villages contrasting with the wretched hives of scum and villainy that are the towns in Star Wars. Uh, the legacy worlds, Tatooine, for example, are obviously treated very, very respectfully. This is yeah. amazing, you know, because it goes back to 1977, so it's got a very long history, really, when you think about it. Yeah, there's shades of, yeah, stuff from Empire and all kinds of business. You'd almost you'd almost pick me for a Star Wars fan, wouldn't you? You would think. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> but kind of born again, actually, with the Mandalorian because I love that so much. Can't stand a lot of the other stuff. <laughs> this... Well, but that's what's so great. Yeah. I think it's the perfect blend of these throwbacks and things from the original three films, mm. and then introducing all these new things that are building on that lore, but in a way that makes sense and fits and is classy. Mm. So I think it's got that broad, old and new appeal. And way better dialogue. (laughs) 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 And funnier jokes too, you know. Uh, And there are storyboards in this, again, going to the process of of the making of the television show. It's very episodic too, so you'll get this episode ties into this particular section. Um, I like. I really like the one with the mud horn battle. You know that big rhino oh, sort of yeah. creature. Uh, the cave is in there, and the creature that trashed Mando's first armor. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that was just awesome, <laughs> and awesomely depicted there. You know, this is a book that if it was just a general science fiction art book, you'd, you'd probably quite like it as such by itself, even if yeah. you didn't know what the hell it was talking about. Yeah. There's a lot of text accompanying it. And, oh, cool. and I felt they've treated the artists worthily. They've given all of the the names of the artists as they go along the credits. So they've learned from previous mistakes in other people's art books, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. Just to say, well, this is really important. Yeah. So I, I thought this was an excellent book. Uh, I think in the US it's probably about 40 bucks or something. Here, mm. expect at least um, 60, something like that, depending on where you get yeah. it, get it from. Uh, online or, or a bookshop or a bit of both because you can yeah. do that. Um, actually, you know, I still have that question. I don't know the answer to this. You know how you get Kindle books and so on. What do they do with art books? Um, I would say they just wouldn't have a Kindle version probably. Yeah. Um, or they may. They I mean, may. I know that they sell, you can get comics and magazines in e-format, but it would just assume it would be on an iPad device or something like that because you could still enjoy this content if you had a nice iPad, I think. Yeah. Um, but I would wonder, I think, art books, they probably just wouldn't release them in an e-format. Yeah. But in any case, you really you want this. You, you want, want this to be on your yeah. coffee table. Or yeah, exactly. Or if you stick totally. if you stick legs on it, it will be your coffee table. <laughs> it's the art of Star Wars: The Mandalorian. It's a 2020 Abrams book, written by Phil Zostak and illustrated by everybody <laughs> <laughs> to do with the Mandalorian. All right. So for the next track, I thought about it, and I'm beginning to see a trend. There's an, a lot of covers of the 
Mandalorian title theme out there now. Ooh. And so people are beginning to play with it and everything. Yep, yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we'll we'll leave this particular part of the show with the Mandalorian title theme and they've said it's an epic vocal version uh, by Aileen Hap. And I'm just looking at the book here, a picture from the book, the reveal of um, Pedro Pascal's face, you know, when they finally take the helmet off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. This is China Mieville, author of Perdido Street Station and The Scar, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. Yeah, that was the <laughs> epic version, vocal version, <laughs> uh, by Aline Hap from The Mandalorian. It's an EP, so, you know, it's all there. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to enjoy seeing, listening to covers of uh, the Mandalorian theme. We've done, I think we've played a disco one before. Mm, 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 uh, mm. And I see there's a medieval one kicking around out there too. Oh. Actually, one final comment about the art of the Mandalorian. It is a pity from my point of view that there's not more pictures of the finished screen-used articles that they're, they're showing. Um, ah, right. Yeah, like idea, like idea and then reality kind of. Comparison. Yeah. Now, most of the artwork is highly advanced in the production stage, so it's almost mm. there, but mm, not mm, quite. Mm. So I know why they're doing that, because there's going to be a, a visual guide to the Mandalorian, you know. I know, mm-hmm. but it, it sort of, it sort of uh, kneecaps the premise just a little bit of giving that yeah, sure. uh, cradle or, or pram <laughs> to, <laughs> to grave or collect yeah. a bounty. No vaporizations. Anyway, um, next is Death to 2020. Yes, I'm keen to hear about this. I didn't realise it was a Charlie Brooker vehicle. Yeah, yeah, now that that surprised me too. But he does have some roots in comedy. Mm-mm. So, you know, it's not just all Black Mirror, uh, which does have its funny moments when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, for sure, yeah. And this is produced and written by him. It's on Netflix. Uh, it's, a, it's a one-shot sort of comedy special. Uh, it's basically what it says on the tin, death to 2020, as Mm. they sum it up, under the auspices of a whole bunch of celebrities, including Samuel L. Jackson, Hugh Grant, Lisa Kudrow, and Tracy Ullman, as well as being narrated by Lawrence Fishburne. So, you know, um, quite a few things in there that uh, make you think this is going to be worthwhile. It runs about 70 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's it's essentially a mockumentary. So all these fictional characters get together and discuss 2020. All of the actually highlights in 2020. <laughs> Not really sure. Uh, is it too soon for this? I mean, you tell me. Do you feel like it's probably a bit too soon to be releasing something like this and then watching it and being able to laugh? Because I don't know. Maybe it is. Because we're still in the midst. Yeah. 2020's over, but. Uh, and We're still in the weeds a little bit. And six days in, we've got like a, a, a potential and actual coup. Yeah, exa- exactly. So I feel like, um, I mean, did it, does it land? Did you enjoy? I did actually. And I may be at odds to quite a few other people with this. Um, <laughs> they start out with uh, bushfires in Australia where they tell us that uh, they left land uninhabitable even to Australians? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> There's a lot in the narration, mm. um, which 
it reminded me a little bit of Little Britain, like just mm-hmm. throwaway lines that you have to listen carefully to it. Like they describe, they talk about U.S. President and experimental pig man Donald but, Trump. <laughs> you know? think maybe that's it because is he British? I don't know. Is the humor maybe more of your sardonic British humor? Yeah, it feels so very maybe, British. <laughs> yeah, maybe like. I mean, I don't want to be, you know, making generalizations, but maybe some people don't get that kind of humor and so it doesn't land for them. I don't know. It'd be interesting because I don't know how it's been received, but I don't think it's been that glowing. No, but I'm happy with it. Maybe I've, yeah. got, maybe I've got the right mix of, um, of larrikin Aussie mindset combined <laughs> with my Chinese heritage which has a very similar sort of um, mm. mindset and works with puns too. Mm, <laughs> so mm. I don't know. I'm, try- I'm, I'm stereotyping myself there. But I'm Cabernet, you're in stereo from Triple R, so we can do that. All right, so, um, you know, there's some great stuff in here. Like there's a character called Bark Multiverse <laughs> who's a, billion- <laughs> a billionaire tech mogul. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, a little bit like Elon Musk. And, again, Elon Musk doesn't sound like a, a name. You know, it sounds like a Star, yeah. a Star Wars name. Anyway, this, totally. this Bark Multiverse is um, an entrepreneur. He's, he's so rich. And mm. he heard um, Greta Thunberg speak mm-hmm. and it's inspired him. So he went to New Zealand and bought a mountain and hollowed, out, hollowed it out as a bunker to hide in. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'm in a position to act. Maybe it's not funny because it's so plausible, you know. Like, it's, yeah. I would love to laugh, but I could see it happen. I could see Elon doing something ridiculous. Tracy Ullman does a great turn as Her Majesty the Queen. Oh. <laughs> so there's a bit of, uh, you know, talking about um, those royals who are no longer really royals. Right. <laughs> Gotcha. So we're, we're hitting on a lot of the big top. I mean, I guess there were other big topics besides the pandemic last year, right? Well, Hugh Grant plays a historian of sorts. <laughs> of sorts. <laughs> he gets a bit muddled and he says, look, cut to a map or something. And, um, <laughs> and he, has a, he has this tendency to confuse um, genre movies with historical events. <laughs> so like, I mean, don't we all? It's like talking about the time that the Ewoks rebelled on Endor. <laughs> and I, I, I just enjoyed it. Um, it, it was it maybe a little bit too long, but I, I felt like mm. it it had a, a good um, feeling for the the zeitgeist of 2020. And mm-hmm. just in case you'd forgotten any of the the horrors, you know, uh, it's all there laid out for you. And you realise that they should be. It makes you think. What did? How did they write this? Did they just? Yeah. Did they just take notes? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so yeah, that's on uh, that's on Netflix for you to check out. Deaf to twenty twenty. I was going to talk a bit more about the the watch, but I think we've run out of time for today. I've watched a couple of episodes of the watch. Look, if you're a if you're a died in the wool Terry Pratchett fan and a Discworld mm. folklorist. You know, mm. if all of those things are so dear to you that you don't want to watch an adaptation that's radically different from the actual show, from the actual books and the source material, then it's probably not going to be for you. I'm kind right. of enjoying it for what it is, but yeah, I'm getting a lot of disturbing ripples right. know, that that, that, okay. that bug me a bit too. I'm just going to stick with it because it's you know the damn thing about streaming usually that short seasons and you think oh it's 
watch it. I'll, I'll just get through it, yeah. <laughs> and I'm actually enjoying the performance of um, the guy who's playing Sam Vines, even though he's nothing really too much like what I, I picture Sam, but Richard Dormer's doing a good job of making this character his own. So I'm quite enjoying that. Anyway, we, we'll, I'll see how we go as we progress through it. But, yeah, a warning to really, you know, dyed-in-the-wool Terry Pratchett fans, you may find this mm. a bit of a, a dibbler's sausage <laughs> in terms of uh, the, mix, <laughs> the mixture and adaptation of it. All right, well, that's about it for Zero-G for today. Uh, what will we go out with? I think Flight of the Concords, um Bowie song, just nice. to play homage to Mr. Bowie. All Sounds right. Good. Thank you to our podcaster, Kayla Larson. And thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. Good to be back. Mm. And Sophie coming up next with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.